You are listening to Episode 6 of Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 11, Betris Orbital, 2352, June 11. Roan relieved me at 1745. The afternoon had been pretty low-key. I knew we were getting close to watch change by the pickup in traffic around 1630. Lots of people who'd been off for the day scrambling back to get ready for the night watch. After she relieved me, I had 24 hours to myself before I had to be back on watch again, and I wondered what I'd do with all that time. I was feeling a little out of it again. It was chow time, though, and I headed for the galley. There weren't many people there. I saw Sarah bustling about while I was loading up at the buffet. She was actually humming and seemed like she belonged there. It hit me funny seeing her there like that. She had that same kind of I'm-in-the-right-place look the cookie did, but I'd never really thought that about Pip. I shrugged it off as too much sitting by myself. Brill came in about then, and I went to snag a table for us. So how's the new guy, I asked as she settled in. Where is the new guy? She grinned. Well, he's no Ishmael Huang in the brains department. Oh, you got a smart one for a change, I asked with a smile. She looked at me sternly. You know I can hurt you if I have to, she said, and then laughed. We ate for a while. Cookie's lamb and potatoes deserved attention, and we both paid them appropriate homage for a few ticks. She shrugged. He'll be okay, I think. He knows the drill pretty well. Our section is set up at about a 90-degree twist compared to what he's used to on the Nora, but he knows his stuff well enough. But, I prompted, why is he here? We're not the military. Home office doesn't move people around, or at least not crew. They may move an officer or two occasionally, but not crew. Why is he here on Betris? My mind was still on Sarah. My mouth started running by itself. Maybe Lois wanted him aboard, I said idly. Brill got a funny look on her face and said, You're talking about the ship that way again. I blinked a couple of times and remembered what I'd said. Oh, I said sheepishly, sorry. That was weird even for me. Actually, she said with a sigh, that's pretty typical for you. She said it with a laugh in her eyes, and it struck me funny, and I laughed with her. You think the ship is manipulating us? I shrugged. It wouldn't surprise me, I told her with a grin, but no, not really. Something's going on, but it has nothing to do with magic ship juju. Like what, she asked, chasing the last of the lamb around on her plate with the tines of her fork. Well, like why is Sandy on no duty and injured status? Brill just blinked at me for a tick. Is this a trick question? She broke her arm on the bridge the other day. I gave the faintest of nods to the table where Sandy sat with Dick Graves, the Spec 1 astrogator. They were having a quiet discussion about some kind of mathematical inversion sequence while they ate. Brill glanced that way and looked back at me with a thoughtful look on her face. Hmm, she said. I'd have thought somebody on no duty injured with a broken arm would actually be using that sling. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing myself, I said, and when Sandy came back from medical this afternoon, she asked me a really interesting question about why anybody on gangway watch needed two hands. Brill looked thoughtful at that. I wonder if anybody else has asked that question, she said, as much to herself as to me. How long did they say you were going to be on second watch? Until the ship is repaired and gets underway. What repairs, she asked. I shrugged again. Mr. Kelly seemed to think we might need as much as ten days here in port to get the ship back in shape. He did specify the availability of parts as a limiting factor. Parts? She asked. What kind of parts? Don't know, but I can tell you, we went through a ton of communications boards. Shipnet was a smoldering pile of rubble. Literally. I burned my fingers on it. That's not supposed to happen, Brill commented. Funny, that's almost exactly what the captain said, too. 
You had quite an adventure up there, didn't you? She said. When did you get the spec two and systems, and why didn't you tell me, you rat? Oh, well, we were kind of busy, and I wasn't sure Mr. Von Eccles meant it when he said I'd passed and he'd noted on my jacket if we lived. If we lived, she asked, wasn't that before we found out about the scrubbers? Oh, yeah, but it was also before we got the ship's vector changed enough so he wouldn't slam into Betris. Slam into Betris? What are you talking about, she asked, but I could see she put the pieces together by the way her eyes flashed. Ballistic trajectory. We had no steerage way, she said softly. Yep. But the captain said we were in no immediate danger. She repeated it, Rill said. True, and at the rate we were going, it would have been at least a whole day before we hit. Hardly immediate. The hell was going on up there, she asked. I have no idea. Mr. Von Nichols grabbed me as soon as I hit the bridge and had me boot up the portable. He gave me a copy of the shipnet code to run. It wouldn't run on the portable the way it was, so I patched it. When I got it running, he gave me his little congratulations, you just passed the test speech, but instead of his normal and I will so note in your personnel jacket this afternoon, he told me, and if we live, I'll so note in your personnel jacket. I chuckled remembering it. I thought he was kidding. About what? About the test. That was about the time I actually looked up. I could see the planet. You didn't think to mention this when you got back? She asked incredulously. When I got the ship code rebooted, Mr. Kelly was able to get the maneuvering thrusters online, and we turned and started firing the kicker so we'd miss the planet. Then Mr. Von Nichols took me down to Systems Main, and we rebuilt one whole cabinet of parts of about four more. After that, we had ship net up and running, and he let me go. Brill laughed at that. You say that so nonchalantly. Oh, yeah, I got done saving the ship and went back to work. I snorted. I hardly think I saved the ship. There were a lot of people working hard to keep our behinds behind us. I didn't even find out that he'd actually added it to my jacket until my debriefing interview. Your debriefing interview, she asked with that tell-me-more tone she had. Yeah, I guess it was the day after. I was thinking hard because everything was so jumbled. You sat with me and we finished the watch after the scrubber mess. I remember, she said. Well, I was so tired I slept through breakfast but woke up mid-morning and went up to get some coffee. Mr. Von Nichols was waiting on the mess deck. He took me back to the office, and the captain and Mr. Maxwell recorded the interview for the insurance people. The insurance people? Well, yeah, that was an expensive exercise in system touring, don't you think? And that was when he told you he'd updated your jacket? Well, not exactly. He didn't mention it at all until I was heading out the door, and all he said was, We lived. I looked in my tablet afterwards and saw that he'd updated my jacket with the Spec 2 systems, and the captain, Mr. Maxwell, and Mr. Kelly all endorsed it. She pulled out her tablet and looked me up. Interesting. I wonder what they're up to. They know, but they put on a good performance offering me this post, so I'm just going to play my role. Are you any good at improv, she asked. Jeez, I hope so, I told her, because nobody's given me any lines. Well, I guess you're in no immediate danger, she said with a grin. We both laughed so loud that Dick and Sandy looked over to see what we were laughing about. As we were busting our dishes, I asked her, so are we going out tonight? Is there a group? She shook her head. I don't know, but I'm played. Babysitting Golden Boy was exhausting. He'll be okay, but after the week we've had, I just want to sleep. I don't know who else is around. Not many, but second and third. I saw Bev go out earlier, and she hasn't come back. Where's the favored watering hole here? Got me. I didn't go out when we were here before. We pointedly did not mention her last night in Dunsany, or the dreamy-looking expression she wore for most of the whole next day. We separated at the passage, and I headed for deck berthing. Pip wasn't in his bunk, but Art was just changing into his civvies. So where's the place to be on Betris? I asked him. Hey-ish. Down on the O2, turn port off the lift. Look for a Lazy 8, that's it. Lazy 8? I asked. It's a cowboy bar? A cowboy bar? He looked at me strangely. What's a Lazy 8 got to do with cowboys? I sighed and started again. Joke. Nothing. You mean an 8 laying down horizontally? 
You got it. I don't know why they have that as a sign. It's not the name of the bar. Let me guess. It's called Infinity. How'd you know? That's just a guess. Good guessing. I'm going to go out and get something for dinner. Maybe I'll see you there, he said. I just waved. I was faintly disturbed, and I didn't know why. How could he not know that? I remembered Fong saying, Art probably won't know this morning, but I didn't really think it was that literal. The odd thought crossed my mind that Lois was taking care of another one. And me, too. Go out or stay in. I thought about it for about three heartbeats before I headed for my locker and started strapping on my civvies. Before I left, I made one pass through the head, cleaned my teeth, swiped some dupil across my face. Chuckling, I trimmed the hairs on my nose and clipped my nails for luck. I remembered Dunsany and began to wonder if I wanted to go out after all. When I slipped into my jacket, I could still smell Alvarez on it. I almost took it off and went back to my bunk. You're being stupid, I said to the face in the mirror, and he agreed. I stood there for a tick, then pulled the dolphin from my ship suit, stuck it in one pocket, put my tablet in the other. The dolphin clicked against something, and I found Henri Roubaix's data chip in there where I'd left it. Surreal. Never knew when I'd get back to Dunsany. Maybe my next ship was headed that way, and I'd buy a couple more shirts. I put the chip carefully in my locker and slammed it shut. I didn't need that tonight, and it wouldn't do to lose it. Some things you can't buy. In two ticks, I was off the ship and heading across the docks. I had a feeling that Roan was watching me walk away in the camera pickup, so I casually slipped the jacket off for a moment so she could get a good look. It gave me a giggle to think of her watching, and I hoped she knew I did it for her because it was sharply cold on the docks. As soon as I got out of pickup range, I put the jacket back on and laughed at myself. At least I amused me. What I was about to do, I didn't really consider until the lift doors opened to the raucous and humid O2 level. One thing about living with a single woman all your life, you get sensitized to context, and the lift opened into a particularly hazardous context. I kicked myself for not recognizing it sooner. Two levels down from the docks was the industrial section of the orbital, where everything above the docks, levels one and up, was the nicer section. Everything below the docks was prefixed with an O and was the less nice section. If Betris Orbital was anything like Dunsany, I was about to leave nice territory and step into naughty country. It was early yet, station time, so it wasn't as crowded as it might have been. I wasn't terribly worried that something would happen on the way to the bar, but I remembered the bubble that Beverly could generate by the sheer force of her will. She could walk through the densest crowds. They'd part for her like silk on a razor. Of course, she had that black leather she-bitch thing working for her. I wasn't going to be able to do that in my corduroy peacoat and blue jeans, but I remembered the cat-like way she walked and just thought, Panther, as I stepped off the lift. I turned to port and headed down the corridor. I didn't have to go far before I realized that Panther might work for Bev, but it wasn't going to work for me. It only took about the second time some guy bumped into me and pushed me off my stride. I recovered and figured I'd try Dolphin instead and concentrated on swimming through the sea of people, between the shoals or spacers and around the obvious obstacles. Amusingly, it worked, and the sea of humanity parted around me much the same way as it parted around Bev. I laughed out loud at my own idiot mind as I remembered that Panther was the wrong word for Bev anyway. Bev was wolf. I remembered that growl she'd given Roan in the mess deck the other day, almost ran into a bulkhead. <sighs> Chuckling at my own lunacy, I swam on and found myself outside a door with a big elongated eight horizontally across the top of the door. Welcome to infinity, I thought and slipped between two shoals of spacers and swam on into the bar. Inside was so much like jump on Dunsany that I couldn't quite believe it. The decor was a bit more beat up. The floor had real grit on it, and a litter of drink straws and the odd toothpick. But the little area out of sound path was there, as well as the ranks of tables around the tiny dance floor. Even the bar looked almost the same. 
the colored lights shining on the bottles in the back were different colors, but I wondered if perhaps the layout was part of some Confederated Planets Joint Committee on Spacer Bars document. I looked to where I thought Al would be if she were there, but I, I knew the Headley wasn't there. Last I'd heard, they were headed for Albemarle, and, and the Marcel Deschamps with the delightful Alicia Alvarez, second mate, was probably docked at Bink tonight. Something clicked in my mind then, standing there, thinking of them, and I hoped they were having a good time. They were good people and deserved whatever happiness they could find. In the meantime, I ordered a gin and tonic from a waitress in a cut-down ship suit. Hers was pink and black, where the waitresses and jump were all solid white, and proceeded to get the feel for the room. There was a DJ just setting up to start making a lot of noise, and I gathered from the instruments on the adjacent stage that there'd be a live band later in the evening. A group of about fifteen assorted spacers were draped around three tables in one corner and gave every indication of being well lubricated, but they'd not yet reached the screaming laugh stage. Several smaller groups were camped out around the periphery, and there was a small shoal of men and women standing at or near the bar in a full-contact cocktail party mode. They weren't drunk yet. They were still maneuvering and posing. One dark-haired woman with olive skin and flashing eyes jolted me into thinking she was Alvarez for half a heartbeat, but I blinked and chuckled at myself. I walked further into the bar, looking for a fascinating woman. I knew she was there. That was another lesson I'd learned from Mom, ironically. I couldn't count the number of times she'd come home complaining about the pigs in the pub who only looked at the big breasts and the short skirts when the place was filled with really interesting people. Those usually were the nights she came home alone. Being a teenage boy and listening to your mother cry herself to sleep like that makes an impression. As I made the turn around the back side of the bar, I found her. To be perfectly honest, I didn't believe I would, at least not so early in the evening. The DJ was still setting up, and while drinking was an all-day event here, there was something about the clock that drove us all in that 2200-0200 time slot, and we weren't even close to that yet. But there she was. In the reduced lighting, it was difficult to get a read, but she was a bit older than the average spacer. and She was dressed. Not dressed up, but dressed. She had on a severely tailored blouse in what might have been white or pale blue. The lights made it hard to tell, but it was a very light tone. She wore a dark gray wool jacket over it. I couldn't really tell because of the way she sat, but I thought she was wearing the matching slacks. In the one-word description category, she was class. Very interesting, given the locale. If she were with a group, I'd understand, but she was alone, at a table where she had the only chair. I faded into the woodwork for a time and just observed. She sat there alone, but apparently relaxed, which was unusual even for a woman alone in a restaurant, let alone a spacer bar. Contradictions, contradictions. I crossed to where she sat, deliberately moving into her line of sight before coming toward her. I hate to drink alone. May I join you? Her eyes flicked to my face and then went back to looking at nothing out in the middle distance. That line was old when I was your age, kid, she said. But she had a bit of a smile, and she didn't say no. All the good ones have been old for much longer than that, I suspect. I smiled back. I still don't like to drink alone. Sorry, kid. Only the one chair, and I'm not getting up, she said, not even looking this time. Oh, chairs aren't the problem. Tell me to leave, and I'm gone. She looked at me then, in a quick flicker up and down, before looking back at nothing. I'm old enough to be your mother, kid. Do you have some kind of Oedipal complex? Actually, and not to be rude, but I think you're old enough to be my grandmother. That's a comment on my age, not yours, besides which I have no desire to kill my father, and you don't seem to be the Jocasta type. She looked at me directly for the first time. Jocasta? Oedipus's mother. Her name was Jocasta. You don't seem much like her. Did you know her well? she asked with an amused smile. No, but you don't seem the type to hang yourself, I told her. Don't be too sure, kid, she said. I smiled at her then and stuck out a hand. Call me Ishmael, I said. 
Do you see me as a whale? She blurted, and I shook my head. Now, that was Ahab. Ishmael was just swept up in his wake, as it were, and I'm not that Ishmael. I kept my hand out. Are we going to play Stump the Chump in the literature category all night, or are you going to introduce yourself? She looked at me in the eye for the first time. She had beautiful eyes, but so sad. Also calculating, but her lips curled up on one side in a charmingly crooked grin, and she slipped a cool, smooth hand into mine. Cassandra. You're kidding, right? I asked. She was still looking me in the eyes, and she hadn't let go of my hand. What do you think, Ishmael? I think I need to find a chair, I told her, but made no move to reclaim my hand. She nodded one tiny nod, slipped her hand from mine, and used one of those well-manicured fingers to indicate which chair she thought I should fetch. I knew right then I was in for an interesting evening. I pulled up the indicated chair and settled down across from her where I could see her. I settled into mine, and she settled back into hers. She drank without speaking. Delicate sips, looking into the glass each time, as if to verify the location of the loose pieces of ice. I nursed my gin and tonic. It was my first, and I suspected it would be my last of the evening. I really wasn't that much of a drinker, although I appreciated the social lubrication that the rituals provided. We didn't speak again for quite a while. Finally, she said, are you always like this? I considered the question carefully and with a great show of pondering. No, I said finally. Sometimes I'm much worse. And I grinned. There was something about this woman that was familiar. I couldn't place it. It wasn't the cropped gray hair, perfectly coiffed. wasn't the face. She didn't look like anybody I recognized. Despite my earlier comments, she looked Roman or Greek. Strong nose, direct eyes, firm chin, and lips I needed to stop thinking about before things got out of hand. Okay, Ishmael, she said, what's the game? No game. I walked in and got a drink and looked for the most interesting woman I could find. That would be you, and so far you're living up to my expectations. I'm an interesting-looking woman, she said with a disbelieving chuckle. What does a buck like you find interesting in a woman old enough to be his grandmother? Well, I never knew my grandmother, so I don't have any preconceived notions for a start, I said. Next, you're sitting alone in a spacer bar. That's interesting. My sense is that people come here to drink and to socialize. You're doing the drinking, although not very much and not very fast, but what does it mean that you're alone? Third, you're wearing one of the most exquisite suits I've ever seen, and I bet it was tailored for you. Spacers don't come here in suits like that, so you're an enigma. I smiled and took a drink without taking my eyes off her, and I like a woman with a little mystery, I told her. By then we'd both finished her drinks, and the waitress came over. Whatever the lady's having, and uh, I'll take a ginger ale, I told her. Cassandra snickered as the waitress was leaving. Ginger ale, she asked. I shrugged. Why not? Don't you want to get drunk first? There was a shadow of bitterness in her question. First, I asked, before you make a pass at me. Oh, I already did that, I said. What, you're drunk? I shook my head. Made the pass, I said, and I smiled. I'm just waiting to see if it gets received. You're serious, she said with a strange smile. What are you doing here, Cassandra? You're not where you need to be. Oh, and you know where I need to be? I shook my head. No, I don't know where you need to be, but here does not seem to be a good place for you. If I had to guess, I'd say you knew it too, but you're here anyway. Why not? Can a woman go out on her own? She asked, challenging me. It's not what I'm saying, but something's wrong here, and I can't put my finger on it. I shook my head. This is a meat market, but you didn't come here to get laid. I don't think you know why you're here, I said suddenly. You don't know anything, kid, she said harshly. The waitress brought our drinks. I paid and gave her a nice tip. When I looked back, Cassandra was closed off again. That eerily familiar feeling was beginning to bother me. Why did you come here, Cassandra? I asked. I can go wherever I like, she snapped angrily. The DJ finished his setup and started to make a lot of noise at that precise moment. Cassandra seemed almost startled by it, in spite of the fact that she'd been sitting there not ten meters from him for the last half stand. We were way too close to it. 
I stood up, downed my drink like it mattered, and skittered the empty off of the table. I held my hand out to her and nodded toward the door. She looked at her drink, looked at my hand, and back at the drink. The music went into a particularly painful riff, and she stood, leaving the drink, but taking my hand. I let her out of there, and we made our way to the lift. She walked beside me. I didn't let go of her hand, and she didn't try to reclaim it. It reminded me of Alvarez, but it wasn't quite the same yet. She was still closed off, and I wondered what she was thinking. It was still turning into an interesting evening. We got onto the lift, and I punched six. Do you know where you're going? She asked, finally letting go of my hand. I shook my head. Somewhere up there. Six should have shops and offices. Not too many people around, and we can walk without being bumped into, but not so few people about that I need to worry that you'll try anything funny with me, I told her. She had a positively dazzling laugh. I think your reputation has already been besmirched beyond repair, Ishmael. Oh, I don't know. I think it might be easy to damage further, I smiled. In the light of the lift, she was absolutely striking. Yes, she was probably sixty, but as Sandy had pointed out, that was barely middle-aged. She had a classically gorgeous face, and the gray in her hair wasn't the solid color I'd thought in the bar, but more of a silvery highlight in her pale blonde. She stole my breath. The suit emphasized the lushness of her body, and while she was only a little taller than I was, still statuesque. What? she said, suddenly self-conscious. I blinked and looked away, not even aware I'd been staring. Sorry, I'm seeing you in the full light took me by surprise. Uh, please don't take this the wrong way, but the light in the bar was rather faint, and while I knew you were something to see, I had no idea you were this beautiful. Please, she said, spare me. There wasn't a bitter edge this time. It was bitter to the core. Bitter dripped onto the lift's deck and sizzled on the metal. I looked at her out of the corner of my eye. Spare you? I asked. The lift opened and we walked out. She was stiff as steel. Spare me. Pup, you think I don't know what you're doing, she said loudly and angrily enough that the couple walking on the other side of the corridor looked to see what the noise was about. I looked at her for a long moment. Perhaps you'd care to enlighten me, Cassandra, I said, deliberately using her name. Suddenly conscious of the people around us, she turned away from the lift and started walking. There's something about those station corridors. You can't just stand in them. I don't know if it's the curve that drags you forward, but she was no more immune to whatever force it was than anybody else. I fell into step and I waited. I have a mirror, she said bitterly. Perhaps you should let somebody check that mirror out, I suggested softly. It seems to be reflecting badly. You take me for an idiot, she spat. Well, I didn't up to now, but you may convince me yet, I joked lightly. I was afraid I knew what this was about. I'd seen it before, and I didn't know how to deal with it. Oh, give me a break. She turned on me and got right in my face. She was actually about three centimeters taller than me. Not a lot, but enough that she could look down. I'm an old woman. I've had more men try to get into my pants than you can imagine. That, oh, you're so beautiful line works on young chickies, but you can't expect it to work on an old bat like me. What do you take me for? God, she was magnificent. I just looked at her with a smile and noticed there was a closed shop behind her with a glass window in the door. I caught her arm and whirled her about so she could see her face in that mirrored glass. I never would have been able to move her if I hadn't caught her by surprise, and I pointed to the window. You are magnificent. Look at that face. I grabbed her chin and tilted it to the side. Yes, you're older than me, but if you're an old woman and the problem is that I'm too much of a kid, then I can accept that. Truthfully, I probably don't have that much to offer a woman like you, but if you're an old woman, then I can't wait to get old enough to take you on because you're worth any ten of those young chickies that seem to have you so bothered. I caressed the side of her face and watched the way my hand moved across her skin and cheek, tracing the cheekbone. Look at that structure. It's a woman in there. Somebody who's worth something. I slipped my fingers through her hair, still watching her in the mirror and slowly getting a handful of the softly cropped hair at the back of her head. I gave it a little tug and I felt the resistance, but also the quickening inside her. Look at that magnificent creature. 
So alive, I can barely stand to look at her for fear of her fire. I released her hair and let my hand slide down her neck as I slipped an arm around her from behind. I hugged her to me so I could reach up my mouth to her ear. Look at that shape, I whispered. That's the shape of a woman, a fully grown woman, not some half-developed child. I pulled the tails of her coat back and let my left hand trail down her side, cupping her hip bone before moving down the outside of her thigh, smoothing the luxurious fabric. I looked at her eyes in the mirrored glass and said, That's what your mirror should be showing you. I gave her a tick or two to look. If it's not what you're seeing, maybe you need a better mirror. We stood there like that for several heartbeats, and finally she let out a quivery breath and smiled at me in the glass. Damn, she said, you're good. I knew at that instant who she reminded me of. I shrugged with a little grin and said, Classical training. Don't underestimate the value of a liberal arts education, I choked. I had no idea what the phrase meant, but it was something I'd heard around the house a lot as a kid. She straightened away from me and I let her go, letting my hand slide across her body in a farewell caress. She turned to me and started to say something, but I stepped in close and kissed her mouth very, very gently. She kissed me back. It was wonderful, but in two heartbeats it was done. I stepped back to give her room. You were about to say goodnight, weren't you? I said. She looked at me then. Yeah, I guess I was, she said, but thank you for the use of the mirror, she said softly. She reached out to me with one of those long-fingered, cool hands and took my cheek in her palm. It's the circumstances, Ishmael Huang. I know, Captain, I said, and smiled. She got a surprised look on her face. Captain, she asked. You are the captain of one of the ships here, aren't you? I asked back. She smiled a little then and said, Yes, but I'm not in uniform. Guessing an officer, okay, but how did you know Captain? It wasn't a guess, was it? No, not a guess. I turned my mouth into the palm of her hand and kissed it. You could be naked and I'd still know. She caressed my cheek again before withdrawing her hand. Now that's a line I haven't heard. She said with a grin, I'm half tempted to test that up. I smiled. Good night, Captain. Safe voyage, I told her. And I turned and left her there while I went back to the ship. Alone. Damn it. Thanks for listening to Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from the Fox Hunters, an Irish slip jig originally recorded in 1984 by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.dorandis.org/golden.